episode 48 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Oleggi. And our special guest today is Professor Judith Byfield, Associate Professor of History at Cornell University and the new president of the African Studies Association of the United States, where she is co-convener of its Women's Caucus. Her publications include the wonderful book, The Bluest Hands, A Social and Economic History of Women Indigo Dyers in Western Nigeria, 1890-1940, published by Heinemann in 2002, and a recent book co-edited with Lorraine Denzer and Anthea Morrison, entitled Gendering the African Diaspora, Women, Culture, and Historical Change in the Caribbean and Nigerian Hinterland, published by Indiana University Press in 2009. Her current project is the Women's Tax Revolt, Gender and Nationalist Politics in Nigeria, 1945 to 1954. Professor Byfield is on the editorial board of the Journal of African History and the Indiana University Press series, Blacks in the Diaspora. Dr. Byfield recently gave the second African Studies Association presidential lecture at Michigan State University, where my hardworking colleague Peter Lim caught up with her. very special guest today is Professor Judith Byfield of Cornell University and the new president of the African Studies Association. Welcome Professor Byfield. Oh thank you very much. Can we start perhaps with a brief background? Um, I was wondering how you first got into African Studies. Um, Well I'm actually originally from Jamaica and did most of my growing up in the US. I'm my family moved here when I was 10 and I my father actually loved Miriam McCabe and so I used to listen to a lot of Miriam McCabe in Jamaica and when I went to college um, I wasn't sure what it, you know what I was going to do but I took this art history course taught by um, Perk Foss who was a student of Robert Ferris Thompson and absolutely fell in love with African studies. (laughs) And um, then I took all these literature courses and I remember when I had to figure out my major in high school, in college, um, the only thing I was sure of was that African and African American studies had to be a part of it, but in those days you couldn't actually major in those, um, in that area. So I actually had to create my own major um, so I created this major in African and African American Studies and Education. Um, and initially I thought I was going to teach elementary school and I actually got my teaching certificate for fifth grade. But then after a month of fifth graders, I decided that wasn't for me. <laughs> um, and decided after that to go to grad school in African history. And why the Nigerian connection? Um, That was the country I knew most about because in my art history course with Perk Foss, we had used, um, um, we had studied the mask of Afikbo, and and then I'd read a lot of Chinua Achebe's novels. And so I felt like, okay, Nigeria, I know a little bit about Nigeria because of those sources and decided to stick with it. Um, I still wasn't sure what I was going to really focus on. Um, 
and I remember the original draft of my master's essay, the outline was about women and nationalism in Nigeria. <laughs> That's as refined as it got. <laughs> um, and then one of my professors, Hollis Lynch, showed me an article about um, African women nationalists from the 1950s. And he pointed out Fumileya Ransom Kuti in that article and said, oh, you know, fella, that's his mother. And um, that sort of did it for me. I latched on to that. And my master's essay was a biographical profile of her. Um, and it was just about the time Nina Umba's book on Nigerian women mobilized mm -hmm. had come out. Um, and so that helped me get some information. I used a lot of newspaper sources in that. And it was in, through that research that I learned about the tax revolt that she led in 47 and um, sort of launched into this very long study then of Abe Yakuta. And when, whilst you were researching Abe Yakuta, mm -hmm. you also stumbled across the, the women dyers. And that set you off on a whole different uh, route. Yes, because actually the dissertation proposal that got approved was about the tax revolt. Um, and I had planned to have just one chapter on the dyeing industry because I came to realize that um, the dyeing industry was one of the most significant industries in the town. If you look at the annual records, they talked about adire, which is tie-dyeing, Adirai production and cocoa production. Um, and there were s um, small studies that were done, um, like long essays that were done on the Adirai industry. Also in Nina Umba's book, there was a, a chapter where she discussed that industry too. Um, so I re also came to appreciate that if I wanted to understand what had happened to women economically, because one of the claims of the women during the tax revolt was that their economic um, standings had declined under colonialism. And I needed to be able to verify that in some way. And so I thought, well, I would look at the tie-dyeing industry and use that as sort of my foundation for understanding what had happened to women economically. And so it was just going to be chapter five. But when I s went back to Nigeria in 88, and I was there for 11 months at that time, there was just so much information on the tie dyeing industry. Also, I came to appreciate that the dyers had challenged the state um, politically as well, too. And so I realized that I had enough here for the dissertation and I would come back to the tax revolt. So that's why the dissertation in the first book ended up being on the tie-dyeing industry. And it's such a wonderful book. It was published as uh, The Bluest Hands, A Social and Economic History of Women Dyers in Abiyakuta, Nigeria, 1890 to 1940, published by Heinemann in 2002 in their prestigious Social History of Africa series. And yesterday when you gave the annual ASA presidential address here at, uh, at MSU and I'm reminded that this is the second podcast recording that we've made of a, a speaker at that series. Last year we had Charles Ambler, the uh, president of the ASA and this year we're honoured to have you. Uh, but yesterday in your address, uh, which dealt with the women's movement and the tax revolt and other issues, you mentioned the 
the tie-dyeing industry and indigo and cocoa mm -hmm. and, and women artisans and um, uh, you, you were mentioning the changing patterns of, of uh, land use uh, mm -hmm. that, that forced the, the dyers, I think, to stop using indigenous uh, indigo? Yes. Um, it, one of the issues um, really that led to the protest that the dyers um, launched against the state was that they, the Alake had banned them from using synthetic indigo and wanted them to go back to using natural indigo. And in this commission of inquiry that was done in 1936, they argued that the quality of the local indigo that was available had declined. Also, there just wasn't sufficient amount of indigo available. And there had even been an attempt to import indigo. I think it was from Cameroon. But the decline of um, indigo was related to cocoa production because as more and more land was turned over to cocoa production, um, less land was available for indigo because indigo was intercropped with foodstuff. Um, and in fact, it was being intercropped these days, or in those days, with cassava instead of yam. And yam was grown on more fertile soil, whereas cassava was grown on, um, on soil that was of shoddy or, you know, l less fertile. And so the indigo that was intercropped with the cassava just wasn't as good as the indigo they had been able to get previously. And so for the dyers, that all of those factors together encouraged them to switch to synthetic indigo. And in the same uh, Abiyakuta region, mm -hmm. we had the development of this uh, strong women's movement, mm -hmm. which you spoke about yesterday. And as you mentioned, this was the, the main thrust of your dissertation, which you're perhaps coming back to and now <laughs> amplifying. And we look forward very much to, to, to the publication of that book. Um, what was the significance then of this movement? And what was the role of uh, Funmilaya Ransom Kuti that, you know, from mm -hmm. that, that um, stellar family of Abiyakuta mm -hmm. that gave us uh, the famous musician Fela Kuti, uh, what was her role and what was the significance of this women's movement? I think her role was really important in, I think, galvanizing, um, bringing different groups of women together because, as I mentioned yesterday, she initially w had founded this ladies' club um, and then was approached by market women to help them um, to help teach them English. And so through these literacy classes, she began to appreciate more of what um, market women were experiencing, what conditions poorer women, in fact, were experiencing in the town. Um, and there were a range of issues. So in fact, the first issue that she took on was a case involving rice sellers who complained that rice was being taken from them and they weren't being compensated for the rice. And this was in 1946. And rice was actually a very major issue during the war because um, the position of the colonial government was that rice was going to be the main staple for the soldiers and the military had to be fed first before the local community. 
And in order to get sufficient quantities of rice, they resorted in some instances to just taking the rice from traders and not compensating them. And so Ransom Kuti approached the Alake on behalf of these rice sellers. Um, and then eventually uh, she organized or, and sort of used her advocacy on behalf of this whole question of taxation and specifically around poll taxes because they didn't compensate in any way or take into consideration um, what women could afford to pay. Um, added to that, young girls, girls actually started paying taxes earlier than boys and um, the tax collectors would often take off the tops of these girls because they were convinced that they could tell if a girl was old enough to pay taxes by the size of her breasts. Uh, and um, it's that sort of coming together of the ladies club and the market women's associations that led to the formation of the Abiyakuta Women's Union. Um, and so part of what I talk about in the book is the way in which I think um, the significance of sort of these elite women in taking on the issues of market women. Um, and you have that transition, you know, from ladies club to being a part of the women's union. And the union was open to women all across um, Apeyakuta, whereas the ladies club had actually been much more selective in their membership. Um, the other thing that I think is so important that Ransom Kuti does, and part of this I think connects to her own engagement in the nationalist movement as one of the founding members of the NCNC, which was the main nationalist organization at the time, the National Council of Nigeria and the Cameroons. Um, her husband, the Reverend Kuti, was also very um, heavily engaged in that movement as well too. And he was one of the founders of the Nigerian Union of Teachers. And so they, she helped bring together the political and economic issues there for at the same time that they were arguing against um, this a tax increase that was planned and challenging the whole logic of the poll tax. She also argued or the organization argued that women, particularly as taxpayers, needed to have representation within the government. And so taxation, they borrowed the American um, saying of no taxation without representation um, and insisted that women should be a part of the political apparatus at the local as well as the national level. Um, and she was a very strong advocate for the right of women to vote. And so as the constitutional or, um, meetings were happening in 1951, that was one of her platform issues that as the country moved towards independence, all men and women should have the vote. Um, and as we know though, at the time of independence, women in the northern part of the country actually didn't have the right to vote. It was women in the east and the west. And uh, as, as Nigeria moved into the post-colonial period, the family was still prominent, uh, particularly Ufela Kuti, and, but uh, Funmilaya was still sort of present there. And so yes. the, the family has become sort of an icon of resistance and mm -hmm. civic society, perhaps? Yes, and, um, and I think civic society uh, concern with both local, national, 
politics, internationalism. She was a vice president of the Women's International Democratic Federation in 1953 and worked with that organization for for many years um, and you know attended conferences in China, in Hungary. Um, and in her files, um, there are actually letters from the Soviet ambassador to Nigeria, and she was actually given an award at one point. So she remained very engaged in international politics. And uh, you're also uh, more recently uh, investigating mm -hmm. the history and the issues around climate change and environmental issues in Nigeria. Um, together with Nigerian colleagues. Um, this, this is a, a new departure for you? Uh, yes, it's sort of, I've had a long interest in environmental issues and actually um, when I was at Dartmouth College I had organized a conference that we did there, I think it was back in 93 or 94 on, on environmental racism and environmental justice. Um, and I was worked a lot with um, a number of students who were in our environmental studies program and in fact our environmental studies program there took students to South Africa um, every year and so over the years I've maintained that as a, a side interest um, but as I continue just paying attention I have been really struck by um, the impact of climate change and you know despite the efforts to say it's not significant. Um, Africa in many ways, in fact, is dealing with those consequences of climate change right now. Um, and it's an area, I think, that hasn't been sufficiently addressed um, in our scholarship. And I've been working with a group of scientists at Lagos State University. And um, I think Lagos State is actually doing some innovative things right now. They have started what they called a foundation program, which is a program where students who are looking to go to university, it's a two-year program, if they are successful, and I think they have to ha have at least a first-level uh, forgotten the way the system works. Second level upper, something like that, um, which probably would be the equivalent of about, about a B or B plus average. Um, if there's, if they maintain that grade point average, then they come into Lagos State University as a second year student, um, and you know they're guaranteed admission. And this program also. Um, is introducing students to a range of subject areas that they may not have been aware of in high school. So they can take courses in journalism, in history, in um, languages, um, literature, and the hope is that with that introduction that they will want to pursue study in those particular areas. Um, as a part of the foundation of this new campus of Lagos State University, um, a group of scholars have put together a research project where they want to study the impact of the university on Badagri. And the plans of the Lagos State government now is to make Badagri a mega city. And so it in, the group includes um, zoologists, botanists, um, physicists, biochemists, as well as a geographer, and they are
planning to do a sort of a baseline assessment and then a longitudinal study as um, Badagri grows, as the highway moves out there, there, there are plans for some sort of high-speed um, transportation system. Um, and so they want to be able to track the changes at all levels from and the environment exactly yeah. you know what happens to the water, the soil, um, lead, um, all of these things. And so I think it's this sort of thinking that um, has to happen more. And we're again studies of very localized areas. But, you know, trying to understand then what are the larger impacts of environmental change on local areas. The other thing that I appreciate about what they're trying to do with this group is that it's, um, they want to make it an interdisciplinary project. Mm -hmm. And so um, bring in social scientists as well, because um, I think this is the direction at which both our research and our teaching has to go so that as climate change unfolds, um, we need to understand what was there before, the science of it, but also the social structures that contributed to the sort of decision making that um, in some ways encouraged climate change. <laughs> mm. um, and, um, and as we anticipate how to grapple with these issues, um, so we need to bring together the humanists with the social scientists and the scientists, I think, in tackling these issues. Really crucial issues for the future. And maybe just to conclude, um, mm -hmm. uh, the African Studies Association, what directions uh, might it take in the future, do you think? Well, I think the association, um, and certainly my hope for the association in the future is that that will become a space where more of these conversations across disciplines, across fields happen, and where people who are involved in um, environmental studies um, are, um, are present in greater numbers um, and are part of conversations with political scientists um, as well as sciences, scientists. Um, we historically haven't had a lot of people who are in the sciences in the African Studies Association. And so I am hoping that they will also see this as a space where they're welcome and where their work is also being, um, is, is being encouraged. And I think in general too, just having greater communication and dialogue between the sciences and um, the other disciplines is so crucial. Um, and so we can become a place where some of the more cutting edge sort of cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary work around Africa happens. Yes, that, that inter interaction would uh, be very mutually beneficial, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Well, Judith Byfield, thank you so very much for speaking to Africa Past and Present. Thank you very much. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. 
Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.